Hey, welcome to the Healthy Postnatal Body Podcast. If you're postnatal expert, Peter Lapp. That, as always, would be me. This, my friends, is the podcast for the 28th of January, 2023. And at the end of a month where we're focused on physical well-being, we're going to end on that as well. We're talking vaginal health with uh, Beth Dupriest. PhD. So Dr. DePriest is a chief science officer at uh, Vaginal Biome Science. She's a former professor of biology and division dean and has been involved in research related to developmental origins of health and disease for over 20 years. We're talking everything to do with the VJJ. Right, we're talking why vaginal health matters much more than people think it does, whether you should use special soap or not, how taking care of your vaginal area improves your overall health and the possible consequences of not taking care of it. And so much more. It's absolutely insane. Um, she, this is a wonderful guest. This was a great conversation. Again, I'm bringing you, I'm bringing you the experts here. Right? We're not messing about. Um Dr. DePriest is exactly the sort of person you want to listen to when it comes to this sort of stuff. So without further ado, we're going to get cracking. Here we go. The most basic of questions, why does vaginal health matter? Yeah, vaginal health matters for a couple different reasons. Um, the way I think about it, there, there are two broad categories here. And the first is just for a woman's health. And the second is for maternal health. Mm -hmm. So for a woman's health, the reason vaginal health matters is because, number one, when you have vaginal infections, it is just super really uncomfortable. <laughs> um, you know, just the quality of life suffers if you have discharge and odor and itching and burning and all of those kinds of things that women deal with that, quite frankly, men don't, uh, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, so, so just from the amount of suffering that women have to deal with, vaginal health is really important. Um, also in that category, um, the healthier your vaginal tissues are, the less susceptible to infection you are. And so right. that that relates to sexually transmitted infections, but it also then translates to maternal health where um, you're less likely to have maternal infections, the baby's less likely to have infections, uh, and the healthier the vagina, the healthier the pregnancy and the baby. All right, because that's an interesting part, because that kind of takes me to one of the first things one of my listeners mentioned when I said that I'd, I'd be having you on. Um, so she said, does it really matter? As it is the difference between having a C-section and having a vaginal birth really as big as people say it is now with regards to the health of the baby? Yeah, that is just a big undetermined question. Mm -hmm. So clearly there are some, some differences that happen. Um, the, the, the colonization of the baby that happens during a vaginal birth just doesn't happen during a C-section. And there are studies that show that that changes the baby's immune system mm -hmm. early on in life. Um, the research I did before is in the area called developmental origins of health and disease. And so that talks That's about how critical, critical windows of development can set you up permanently for health or disease later, later yeah. down the line. And so, there's this theory and it's, you know, it's a great well-supported theory that the way your immune system develops during that first 30 days after birth because of this, this vaginal inoculation 
that that can actually set a baby's immune system up for the rest of their life. But right now that's a theoretical concern and we just don't have the data because we just haven't known about this long enough to do those really long-term studies. Yeah, so. and it takes it takes a fair while and we know that with most studies to do with women's health, and I'm sure we'll catch on this, uh, get onto this a little bit there, they're not as, they don't tend to be as well-funded. Um, right. <laughs> as, 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 let's say, I mean, I would throw the opposite of female, say as, as male studies, for some reason, the female studies into feminine health and female health does just is it not catchy enough to to, to get the funding is that what it is well you know it depends on who you ask what the reasons are is it not catchy enough um you know some people will say that it's misogyny and and that's Mm -hmm. probably part of it um but i think the other piece of it is a lot of our healthcare dollars are focused on morbidity so what Mm -hmm. kills people and we're not as interested in quality of life. We're not interested in suffering. As long as you live, it doesn't matter if you're suffering. Like, <laughs> yeah. have all the UTIs, have all the BV, have, you know, that's fine as long as you're alive. And that's, you know, people might argue with that. But, you know, we want to live well. We don't just want to live a long time, right? So, and, and so I think that's a piece because a lot of these infections are not necessarily deadly except in certain circumstances. And so they get ignored. Yeah, that, 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 really, that makes complete sense. And that is something that... I know drives me nuts and it drives yeah. most healthcare professionals uh, yeah. absolutely up the wall. I did an interview a while ago with someone, um, I can't remember, Jade and Tim, I think their name were, uh, doctors, they were doctors in, in America and they explained how the funding system worked within the insurance company that they used to work for with regards to how you make money and there is no money in, in, in illness prevention. There just is, or at least... There isn't as much money in. It saves a ton of money down the road. Exactly. But, but you can't quantify it. You you no. can't count how many diseases didn't happen because something happened, right? No. It, it, so it, if exactly. you can't quantify it, they don't pay for it. <laughs> no, exactly. And, right. and, and, and and that's the tricky bit. So because one of one of the questions that 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 I was asked, because you hear a lot about the microbiome at the moment. Um mm-hmm. I did an interview with Dr. Hugh Varma for those who have been listening for a while, I think it was 60, 70 episodes ago, um, who has a PhD in skin biome and all, all that sort of interesting stuff. Um, okay. But he didn't, he immediately said, but I'm not that familiar with the vaginal microbiome. Right. Right? He just went, that is not my area of expertise. And that's why I love people of people with PhDs because they just go, no, but that's not my, that's not my drawer. Uh, right. Whereas everybody who, doesn't know anything just goes i'm an expert in everything <laughs> right? <laughs> right so um but what what because what one of the questions asked uh was so if you're having this do you if you're having a c-section and apparently these there and they're now selling these treatments and i'm not how not sure how legit they are that you can have a c-section but find a way to through pill form or or smears or whatever it is to give your biome, your vaginal biome, to mm-hmm. the baby and to see if that works. And should people be paying for that? Because in America, everything you need to pay for everything, right? Well, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, should people be paying for that? I, you know, I, I don't know. I, my understanding is that the FDA is cautioning people against yeah. doing that because the data just aren't, aren't there yet. Uh, and, you know, I think it's a valid question. When you consider that at any given point in time, 29% of the popu- of, of women in the U.S. have 
bacterial vaginosis. Mm-hmm. About 30% have an intermediate, which is not a super healthy vaginal biome, and only about a third have a healthy vaginal biome. If you don't know if you have a healthy vaginal biome or not, do you really want to be inoculating your baby with what might not be a healthy biome? Oh, right. And so shot. that's, I think, what you need to consider. Like, if you know you have a healthy biome, maybe it's OK. But if you have an unhealthy biome, do you really want to have that be your first exposure to your baby? So and, you oh, know, obviously it happens with vaginal births all the time. But at least, you know, that's a, a known thing where this is totally experimental. So, you know, I, I kind of are on the side of caution. No, cool. I mean, that's, and I'm just, like I said before, I'm just asking the questions, right? Yeah. And that, that makes sense to me. So yep. what is bacterial vaginosis really? Because uh, I'm like, like you said, a lot of women have it, but they don't yeah. necessarily know that they have it. They don't, it doesn't get diagnosed all that often or it, exactly. gets, it gets undiagnosed. So I'm thinking most women just don't know what it is. Exactly. Well, there's partly where women don't know where don't know what it is, but it's also that very often it's asymptomatic. So what BV is, is what we call it as scientists, it's a polymicrobial condition, meaning that there are lots and lots of different species of bacteria present in the vagina that just shouldn't be there. Mm. So in a healthy vagina, you have pretty much one species that will dominate. And it's usually a a species of lactobacillus. So it might Mm. be lactobacillus crispatus or it might be lactobacillus gasseri or lactobacillus jensenii. Those are the most common healthy species. And you generally have like 90 plus percent of one of those would be a healthy vaginal microbiome. In BV, those are at very low levels. um, And then you have high levels of lots of other anaerobic pathogens like Gardnerella vaginalis, Atopopium vaginae, Prevotella bivia, all sorts of different species. But you have lots and lots and lots of different species. So that's why we say it's polymicrobial. Uh-huh. And so in a woman who has symptoms, the symptoms of BV can include a discharge. It has an odor that people describe as fishy yeah. um, based on amines or aminos that are present. Um, you end up having lots of, if, if a doctor does a, a vaginal smear, takes, takes some vaginal fluid and puts on a microscope slide and looks at it, you can see the vaginal cells that are just coated with bacteria, with the wrong bacteria. Um, and then, so, so those are some signs, uh, oh, and then the vaginal pH becomes elevated in BB also. So it gets up above 4.5, whereas a healthy pH is 3.5 to 4.5 or so. So those are kind of the clinical signs and symptoms of BV, but not every woman has all of them. Some women have BV without having any symptoms. So we really haven't even figured out as a scientific community why some women have symptoms and others don't. Okay, so 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 should women get tested for this? And especially people listening to this who are prenatal or thinking about having kids and they're just having that whole C-section vaginal birthing that that we were talking about. Yeah. So BV. Yeah. So, so for women who are planning pregnancy, I would say absolutely get tested if you're have if you're having symptoms, especially. Right. But even if you're not having symptoms, um, a, a good obstetrician should be testing. I think, um, and that is because um, BV is associated with almost every kind of um, adverse pregnancy outcome you can think of. It's associated with infertility. It's associated with miscarriage. It's associated with chorioamnionitis, you know, maternal infections, endometritis. Um, So all all of these things, the risk of those is elevated when you have BV, whether it's symptomatic or not. 
And so, so the current standard of care in the U.S., what the CDC recommends, is that pregnant women with BV should be treated with antibiotics, whether or not they have symptoms. Right. Um, now, for women who are not considering getting pregnant, that's a different question. If a woman is symptomatic, sure, go get treated. If you're mm -hmm. not symptomatic, I don't know that we currently have, I don't think there's any benefit to screening um, at a doctor's office just to if you're curious, because the only tools currently available to treat BV are antibiotics and the mm -hmm. risk benefit or the benefit risk ratio is just really off to give someone who has no symptoms antibiotics, right? It just, um, you're not going to give a woman who has no symptoms antibiotics because it's too risky. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And especially with the whole, um, the problem of uh, antibiotic resistance and all that sort of exactly. stuff. We don't want to throw antibiotics, uh, antibiotics exactly. So, you know, as new tools come available on the market that are not antibiotic based at that point, then it makes a lot of sense to start doing more screening and start asking the question, can we uh, help women who are asymptomatic with BV get a healthier vaginal microbiome? And so those are some of the studies that we're we're working on now is to try to figure out if we can improve women's microbiomes. Yeah. So because. Again, for uh, bacterial vaginosis, there is no, there, there's no long-term cure. As Kitty snores in the background, by the way, for all the, <laughs> everybody listening, I'll tell her, I'll turn her off. It's not me. It's not me. It's not Beth. It's not myself. It's just Dinky snoring because she's fat. Uh, um, so, because there, there is no cure for BV, is there? For um, <laughs> Well, antibiotics should be a cure, um, but it fails so much of the time. So, right. right so if, if a woman takes metronidazole or clindamycin, 70% of the time, she's not going to re reach a clinical cure. But even if she does, uh, for 70% of women within a year, they'll have another episode of BV. And uh, it's 43% it's within three months will have a recurrence. So there are women who are just constantly, constantly on cycles of antibiotics after antibiotics after mm -hmm. antibiotics. And it's not every woman with BV who does that, but there are a lot of women who are just kind of constantly cycling through antibiotics to try to get rid of BV. Yeah. So what, because this is an interesting, an interesting, I mean, there's many interesting things there. So first of all, you mentioned vaginal pH, and that kind of takes me to mm -hmm. the next question uh, mm -hmm. that I always wondered about, and I asked Dr. Varma about this, and he said he doesn't know. Um, should women be using different soap for their private parts than they use for their arms and their face? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think you'll get several different answers depending on who you ask. <laughs> my opinion, my opinion on this is that the soap you use in the genital area should be matched in terms of pH. It should be very, very gentle and not drying. Uh -huh. um, and it should be safe for the lactobacilli, which are the healthy vaginal species. So there are some products out there on the market that match those characteristics. But, uh -huh. you know, bar soap is not not a good thing to be using. Um, it's really harsh. It's drying. It dis It disrupts the the intercellular connections between cells. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's, it's really not good for very delicate tissue. Um, now the reason I say it, you know, it depends on who you ask is there are a lot of women's health experts out there who will say that women shouldn't use any cleansing mm. at all. 
And I don't go that far personally, because when you consider all the different substances that the vulva is exposed to, it's menstrual blood, it's semen, it's um, urine and feces and sweat. And it's not just like the regular sweat on your forearms. It's the same kind of sweat you have in your armpits. And it's this oily sweat. Uh, water doesn't cut it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so I think, you know, if you're if you're a healthcare practitioner telling women only use water, they're just going to ignore you and go use bar soap. So I'd mm. rather you give them an option that's, you know, the right pH, safe for lactobacilli and gentle and have them use that product than, than tell them that, that water is going to do a good job. And in fact, um, uh, in America, ACOG says, only use water, but there are other colleges of obstetrics and gynecology in other parts of the world that say using water alone is drying to the skin because of the osmotic properties. And so, you know, there's disagreement even among experts in different, different countries. So I'm a proponent of using a gentle, intimate wash. All right, cool. So that is the answer we're obviously going to go with because you know much more about this stuff. Uh, <laughs> and, and also, I, I think it's interesting because when you, when you mentioned um, LACOG and all those organizations, and it's the same in the UK with regards to the, and, uh, the National Health Service and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> These organizations tend not to be as, let's say, at the forefront of cutting-edge science as some other people might be. Uh, as in, okay. science takes time. Uh, it does. It, it takes a long time, like you said, with regards to um, to to the studies into C-sections versus vaginal birth. Yeah, you're looking mm-hmm. at 16, 20 years. You're looking at loads of, uh, you need uh, a decent amount of numbers and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And even then, results, when it, with regards to big organizations, take a while to filter through. So we know, for instance, mm-hmm. that in the UK, the NHS is like 20 years behind the time zone. On many things, as most as most doctors and scientists will tell you, and mm-hmm. that's because it's an institution that every process has to be changed and it has to be run documented. Exactly, and, right. and there, yeah. there there are just rules and procedures. There's nothing wrong with doing it that way. In fact, it's probably the only way to do it if you run a big right. organization. Right. But but it does it does mean that people like yourself who um, are more at the forefront of actually performing these things tend to have slightly different opinions than say the the right. the, the organizational body. Exactly, exactly. Right. So, so those of us who are actually doing the research yeah. um, tend to hear things sooner than the rest of the public. So, uh, you know, we go to conferences, we talk to other professionals, mm. we hear what they're working on. Um, so our our opinions might might be a little ahead of schedule. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a much but, better and much more succinct way of putting what what, yeah. what I just spent five minutes trying to get out of my mouth. Yes, all good, all I'm just because I always like to like to point that out to to people listening to the podcast that that is why when I speak to experts in the field, and this is why I filter out a tremendous amount of people that I just have like books to sell that don't make any sense or or products yeah. to sell that don't that don't really stack up. Um but that's why I was because they I inevitably get emails in from people saying, ah, but the NHS says or mm-hmm. this organization says, and I just go, yeah, but that is because these things take a bit of time to filter through. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean you should believe every quack out there that says right. Uh, and that, right, because that right. is probably something you come across a lot as well. But, sure. <laughs> but when, when you when you really know what you're talking about, and yeah. this is kind of what you do for a living, how many 
books do you get sent or questions that you get sent but people that say oh this wonder product is out there now and this is what we should be buying and all that sort of stuff uh, you know, so I'm actually fairly new to the vaginal microbiome space, and so I, I'm uh, I'm learning myself. Uh, I came through the developmental origins um, background, oh, yeah, uh, sure. so I've been in vaginal biome for about a year and a half. So I'm I'm just learning myself what all is out there. But you know, I last week I was looking at a bunch of different Volvar products, and oh my gosh, kind of the, the insane things are. <laughs> Out there. Like pe people putting herbs and flowers oh. and like you just don't need all that stuff. Like, um, so vaginal care is actually really simple. It's really simple. Like there's there's not really any magic to it. You want the right pH, you want to make sure that the whatever products you're using are not hyper osmolar, so mm -hmm. they're not gonna dry out the vaginal tissue. Uh lactic acid is a good ingredient to to get the acidity. That you want uh and that's that's kind of those are the magical keys and they're not really they're not a secret they're out there everywhere um and so people who are trying to do all of these fancy fancy things with herbs and flowers and uh, like it's just not necessary it's really not necessary so um so yeah but the other thing i i don't want to let this go too too far you know we're talking about like expert expert opinion and i just want to make sure that i point out that not every expert opinion means it's right. You know, we're really yeah. well informed, but a lot the space that scientists work in is in the testing a hypothesis space. Mm -hmm. And so we can have this great idea, but once you do the test, it turns out it's wrong. So, you know, I, I have a mentor, he, the chair of my dissertation committee, and he he's a world renowned scientist. And he told me once that he's only right 50% of the time on his mm -hmm. hypotheses, you know, so like, if if that's if that's the bar, like you you definitely have to be careful listening to scientific opinion. Um, and this is why you know the the National Health Society or the FDA or the CDC here in the U.S. like they are behind because they're making sure that when they uh, put out a recommendation that they know that it is solid that there is yeah. evidence for it. Right. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely I right. Never I, I did an interview, and this uh, for people listening to this, the one I did, uh, which came out on the 1st of January, I'm recording this a bit ahead of time, um, with Anthony Lowe, who is like one of the biggest deals in Australia with regards to diastasis recti and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, like he said, appealing to authority in itself is, is an issue, right? Just because someone has a PhD doesn't necessarily mean exactly. that what they're saying is right, even if their motives are completely uh, exactly and sound. Because um, Exactly. I mean, and, you know, we've seen this, not to get too far off topic, but the, the public has had you know, a front row seat to seeing how science is done with the whole COVID epidemic. Mm. And they've seen how chaotic it is when government tries to make policy when the science isn't settled yet. Yeah. Right. And I, that is the reason for the back and forth on masks and vaccines and this and that. And, and the public is left being really confused, rightly so, because mm. the science just isn't settled yet, yeah. you know, and science takes a long time to really figure out what the real answer is. So, so I just put that out there just because number one, to help people understand COVID and science and why <laughs> it's been so chaotic. Yeah. But secondly, because that, that is the scientific process. It is back and forth and it is experts disagreeing with each other for valid reasons, right? Until yeah. over years data comes in. Yeah, exactly. And that, that is what I always, the thing I think is nice when talking to scientists is 
like you said, they disagree for valid reasons. They're not just point scoring. They're just going right. with the, are you sure this is right? Because when I looked at it, it was something right. else. And then, oh, well, damn, turns out that was wrong. And that is completely different from, uh, let's say, the way other people debate things. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> also, sure. That's also, a diplomatic also, way to say it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's a nicer way to put it. Um, but, you know, in the meantime, it still makes sense to 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 listen mm-hmm. to the experts over uh, people who have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> yes. Let me make it very clear. So when you, when you said earlier on, you said that the, a healthy uh, vagina biome is made up of uh, 90% of the same um, uh, lactobacilli, right? And you mentioned mm-hmm. three or four different kinds. Mm-hmm. People know which kind they're... Because I know I'm going to get that question. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> yeah, matter which you know, one you have. At this point in time, there we don't even know enough about how Lactobacillus crispatus is different from Lactobacillus gasseri or Jensenii right. to know what functional differences they have. Or if some people do better with one and other people do better with another. We just know that a lot of women have crispatus and some women have gasseri and some women have Jensenii. But they all are healthy if they have those as their dominant species. So I don't think at this point is particularly useful for anyone to know which one they have. It's more useful to know if you have BV or not. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, and, but, you know, there are these direct-to-consumer at-home kits that that you can get if you're curious about what your vaginal microbiome is. Mm-hmm. and. You know, so if if you're, you know, some of us just like data and we just like knowing about our bodies and we, you know, we might want to do that. But but the thing, if anyone is interested in that, what's important to understand is that the vaginal microbiome changes so quickly from day to day, depending on what you're exposed to. Like if if you go through your period, it's going to change for a few days and usually it goes back. But it doesn't always, you know, or if you have sex, it's going to change or if you go swimming, it might change, you know, and so. Anytime you do one of those measurements, it is a snapshot on that specific moment that that's what your results looked like. But if you did the swab the next day, they could look very different. So so you just have to kind of understand that it's not a permanent state. It Mm. changes all the time. Cool. Because that that then answers my next question, because what most people uh, will obviously do is when they figure out, say, what's their main... um, uh, lactobacilli is the first thing people tend to do these days is think, oh, that means I need to buy different stuff because uh, okay. we have too much money in the West and therefore we immediately <laughs> go onto Amazon. <laughs> what can um, I burn? What well, can I burn my money on? <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. How can I spend this? And, yeah. and I'm sure, and I haven't, I haven't looked this up, and I could, but I'm fairly sure if I go onto Amazon, I can find some sort of probiotic specific for whatever lactobacilli you happen to right. Should people be buying probiotics at all? With regards to, I mean, and I'm a big fan of kefir and all that sort of stuff for the gut biome, and it makes me feel mm-hmm. nice. But does it help for your vaginal so, so that is a question that is not yet settled by science. There are quite a few studies out there that are small studies, mm-hmm. um, not particularly robust, that do show a benefit of, t- of using vaginal probiotics. But there are also studies that show no benefit. I'm not aware of any studies that have shown any harm, though. And so for me, if you 
I, my perspective is if you do a vaginal biome test and um, you're not having any symptoms and you're not planning pregnancy or anything like that, I don't think it's worth using a suppository to try to fix whatever imaginary problem you have. Um, <laughs> if you're having symptoms and you can't get relief or you've tried multiple rounds of antibiotics and you're still having recurrences, those are the women I think we're going to benefit the most from trying a probiotic or a vaginal care system or something like that. Yeah, because that is because um, that, that that tends to be the, the first, thing. and I'm very much it's the same with regards to the the gut biome and probiotics. I always tell people, listen, the the, the science is 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 iffy at best, but it makes me feel better. Yeah. So I take kefir, and I don't tell you what to buy. I'm just saying this yeah. is what I take. Uh, yeah. Whether you have kombucha or kefir or kimchi or whatever. Yeah, I I would say for vaginal probiotic suppositories or oral capsules. Um, most of the products that are out there right now are strains that really were developed for the gut microbiome. Yeah. So you'll see lactobacillus acidophilus or rhamnosus or, um, salivarius or, you know, if you're into the gut microbiome, you might recognize some of those, yeah. but most of them don't have crispatus, ginsenia, and gassery. So if you can find a product that's, that has those three, you know, I think that's good. I also am a fan of combinations because yeah. as I said earlier, like some women have a lot of crispatus, but other women are dominated by gassery or ginsenii. And we don't know yet why some women have this one versus that one. And so I think it, you know, if you're going to use a suppository, using one that has a blend makes the most sense because you just don't know if your body's going to match up with one or the other better. Yeah, sure. At this point, without any data, that's the way yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and especially when you're talking about how, how it changes quickly and, and, and all that yeah. sort of stuff, you just throw everything at the problem, see what sticks, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and especially with regards to, because this was something Dr. Varma said at the time, he said, for him, a lot of the probiotics don't make sense with regards to skincare um, mm. because it's basically made up of dead stuff he said they're not live cultures you're working with so he said what are you working with you're basically putting dead yogurt on your face um, okay <laughs> with, with regards to with regards to your skincare on the face he said it just doesn't make sense to okay. uh, to to do that um so his point was i think basically the whole probiotic scene is a bit of a minefield with regards to what what you should buy yeah. which is why he tends not to recommend stuff other than just saying that if it makes you feel better genuinely mm -hmm. even if it's just act of spending 50 bucks <laughs> the placebo <laughs> effect is real you it, know it, 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 is, really, it is it really is so whatever makes you feel better and release your symptoms but but while doing no harm right and that's the yes, thing course, that yeah. there, there are products out there on the market that definitely will do harm um you know hyperosmotic lubricants is like the the textbook example of, right. of vaginal products that do harm um so what, what, what is that just a so, so classically, the way lubricants were formulated is mm -hmm. with lots of glycols in them, lots of glycerin in them that give them a really high concentration of stuff. Right. And what that does is it dehydrates the cells of the vagina to the point where they shrivel, they die, they slough off. And so it thins your tissues and actually makes you susceptible to infection. So, um, so hyperosmotic lubricants, all of the classic, you know, leading brands, <laughs> That you can think of are hyperosmotic. Right. Um, now they've all come out with natural 
less um, less damaging lines since then. But the original classic formulas are still hyperosmotic, and so those definitely do damage. Um, so you, you know, if you're looking to to use something in the vagina, you definitely want to make sure that you're not going to be harming your vagina while you're doing it. Oh, so. absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I always had a look at the vaginal uh, biome biome science uh, website, which is your mm -hmm. website, which I will mm -hmm. obviously link to for everybody listening to this. Um, and that's osmolality that you're talking about, isn't it? Yes, osmolality, right? Yeah. So so the interesting thing about vaginal osmolality, no, number one. Osmolality is one of those things that is so fundamental to human health. It's water balance, yeah. right? So we have known for hundreds of years, maybe not hundreds, for decades and decades about what osmolality should be for your blood or what it mm -hmm. should be for it inside your cells or what it should be in all these different body compartments. But nobody measured vaginal fluid until 2018. Oh, wow. That's, so even later, that's later than even I thought, to be honest. Right. And still, there's only one paper that has measured it. And so, and and interestingly, the World Health Organization actually came out with a with guidance on lubricants for vaginal health before that. That right, suggesting yeah. that osmolality should be what they thought would match vaginal fluid, but in fact, vaginal fluid osmolality is higher than most other compartments in the body. So it's higher right. than plasma, higher than intracellular fluid. Um, so, so, you know, uh, the osmolality of a vaginal product really should be around 400. If right. 350 to 400 is like the narrow range, a wider range would be like 200 to 500. That would be kind of a safe, healthy range. Um, but you get higher than 500 and then you start drying out your tissues and that's, that's not great. So. And do products list that? Because to be honest, I mean, I had a look on your website and then I had to Google what osmolality actually was. Because when you're saying, oh, we knew this with regards to blood stuff and we knew this yeah. uh, with regards to other stuff, and I'm like, I never even heard of the word. Well, right, right. But a medical professional will know what you mean if you're talking about osmolality. So yeah. at least if they, if they, if they graduated from the program. At least should. a doctor is on the board. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so that the question is like, how do you find that information? Yeah. Number one, um, brands that produce lubricants or vaginal moisturizers that know about this will promote it because right. it's that important. And mm. so if they're not promoting it on their website, it's probably not Don't helping. Don't buy it. Yeah. Right. So, so if you're looking for products and they give you the range and it's anywhere around this 250 to four to two, 250 to 500, that that's fine. And, and it'll be on the website. <laughs> um, so, um, if, yeah, <laughs> that, so it's, that's just so, something to look for. Mm -hmm. so, so but the you know, the more natural that, brands tend to be paying attention to it. Sorry. Yeah. So, so the information is definitely out there when you start mm -hmm. looking for it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. No, that makes sense. Okay. And, and that is, I mean, we're, we're now like 30 odd minutes in and we've only actually discussed the microbiome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and this is the thing that always fascinates me with regards to vaginal health. And, and, um, I'm, I'll, I'll be a bit, um, a bit opaque about who I'm talking about here. Cause well, some, let's say someone I know is, <laughs> let's say a specialist in the field of vaginal health at one of the big hospitals in, in, um, uh, He's a gynecologist, a gynecological okay. surgeon. 
right? Um, okay. And uh, he's at the top of top of his game. I think a lot of this stuff isn't even that. Uh, and, and I already said he, so so we know it's a blow, right? And of course, by the time you're at the top of your game, when you're a gynecological surgeon, you know he's going to be middle-aged at least, right? He's at least my age because, you know, otherwise middle-aged white guy. Just that, that's sure. pretty much okay. ballpark what we're talking about and therefore ignorant in the ways of the vagina. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but that, that is just the way it is. A lot of this stuff is not actually out there as much as you would think it is with regards right. to, um, I mean, sure, women don't know about it, but guys are completely oblivious about this sort of stuff. Right? Sure, sure. Absolutely. Um, y- you know, uh, I, I, I told you before we started recording, I used to be a biology professor, yeah. so I, I can talk forever. But, you know, I, I would teach anatomy and physiology to non-science majors. And the misinformation just about basic anatomy and even, you know, I, I help with customer um, uh, questions sometimes. And, right. you know, w- women do- can't differentiate between the vulva and the vagina, you know, like mm-hmm. women can't. Right. Yeah. Because society doesn't. And so there's so much information or disinformation out there. It's not really surprising that women and men don't really understand. What gets me, though, is that gynecologists are not better trained. Mm-hmm. So um, so I've been uh, getting to know people in in two different societies, ISSVD um, and ISWISH here, here mm-hmm. in the U.S. Or, well, uh, they're, I think they're both international. So that's why they start with I. <laughs> <laughs> ISSVD is International Society for the Study of Vulvovaginal Diseases. And then ISWISH is, let's see, the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. Right. And practitioners in these societies get it. They know about the microbiome. They know how to do um, wet mount microscopy to look in office to see what what vaginal health actually looks like. But but practitioners who are not involved in those societies, generally, they don't even know about vaginal pH being an easy in-office test to to help differentiate what kind of vaginitis a woman might have. Um, they're, They're not doing these really simple things. They don't they a lot of gynecologists don't even have a microscope in their office to be able to look at vaginal fluid. Yeah. And that's just, it's so easy and so basic and gives you so much information. Um, and so for, you know, when gynecologists aren't even regularly doing the basic simple things, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, clearly they're not going to understand the molecular biology, you, you yeah. know, and t- take the time to really get that. But again, I, you know, we were talking earlier, you know, you, they don't get reimbursed for checking pH and they don't get reimbursed mm. for making a, a microscope slide. And so they tend not to do it. And the other thing is practitioners want easy yes or no. Does this woman mm. have BV or does she not? And they want a molecular test that will say, yes, they have it or no, they don't. And the fact is with BV that it's too complicated to give a yes or no. It just is not, it's not that kind of condition. So so it would be better for gynecologists to actually know about BV and about its it's about the nature of BV and be able to diagnose it without relying on a molecular test. But that's the state of affairs. But but yeah, that's kind of we are what we are. <laughs> so, yes, sort of exactly. Um, yeah, um, it's 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 like you said earlier on. We're not really we're not really sure what it is. I just I found it interesting that apparently the vast majority of gynecologists in the UK are men, um, at least mm-hmm. at, at the top level, not, not saying in, in, in medical school, not saying they're starting out, I'm not saying women aren't catching up. But, you know, if if the people at the top of the tree tend to be the opposite sex to 
the people with the problem. Yeah. And there might be at some stage, there might be a disconnect somewhere. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's hard to understand if you've never had the symptom, you know, if you've no, never, if you've never dealt with that kind of infection, it's really, it can be hard. Exactly. I mean, I, I've, I've heard lots of doctors after their own illnesses say every, every doctor should be a patient at some point to know what it's really like, you know, and it's just, yeah. it's impossible for a male doctor to really understand women's health. Uh, you know, they can understand it pretty well, but can't really get it. <laughs> no, but the, the, this, this, this is what I always say with regards to postnatal health. I, I, I always say, okay, I am genuinely incredible at helping women heal from diastasis recti and all that sort of stuff. I am patting <laughs> myself on the back a little bit and swearing a little bit. I am shit hot at it. <laughs> what I do not understand is living with diastasis recti. Exactly. I am, yeah. I am basically house. Do you remember Hugh Laurie's house? <laughs> yes, yes, I do. Knowledge, I have no. I, I can empathize because I'm not a jackass and I'm not a sociopath. So when you tell me something hurts, <laughs> I can go, "Oh, that must really suck for you." But <laughs> fundamentally, I, I do not have your lived experience, as I believe right. the, the popular phrase is. Um, right. But that's okay mm-hmm. because fundamentally, I am just there to fix a problem, and at least I understand what the actual problem is. Um, right. I am not the one deciding on funding for research. Right. <laughs> in fact, I'm the one screaming, there needs to be a hell of a lot more research done into this stuff. Yeah. But yeah. not by me. Um, and it is, yeah, you, you would think it would filter through more. And maybe maybe that is happening. I don't know. Um, you hope. <laughs> you, 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 you would hope at some stage, right? It, it has to, it simply has to change. Now, I also noticed on, on your, um, on your website, like I said, we're only, We've only just touched on on the biome stuff and yeah, pelvic floor disorders and all this sort of stuff. I just briefly like to get because I have you in here and, and mm-hmm. I, I, I need to because I, I yeah. have a lot of people. I get a lot of emails from from companies selling me stuff. Okay, usually saying, oh, if you list our spot, our thinking, you, you know, you can you read an ad out on 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 the website, uh, on 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 the podcast." The answer is okay. usually no. By the way, I've never done any ads on the podcast. I'm not going to start now. Um, so can well because as according to your website, you know, a, a lot of a lot of U.S. women are have some sort of pelvic floor disorder. Right, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. especially older, uh, it it it, it right. increases with age. Right, we, right. we know that for a fact because as it it happens with all the all the aging thing, muscle wastage and 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 imbalances mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. Right, should people be just doing kegels? You know, is 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 the kegel yeah. the answer in the way that we are told it is? So, so the first thing I'll say is that I am not an expert in pelvic floor disorders. Yes. I am helping coordinate some clinical studies involving pelvic physical therapy for pelvic floor disorders. But having talked to some experts who are doctors of physical therapy about this very question, uh, kegels are appropriate sometimes and they are totally inappropriate other times. So, and the only way to know is to go talk to a qualified pelvic physical therapist. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you really, um, yeah, ke- kegels can be helpful in the right circumstances, but they can also, 
Um, if, if uh, I guess my understanding is that if you have um, uh, hi, uh, a hypertonic kind of situation, yep, yep. Kegels can actually be detrimental, and so, or at least not helpful. But but I think detrimental is what I understand. So. I mean, if you have a woman who's considering doing Kegels because she's read something on the internet, I think she should be consulting with an expert who can tell her what her pelvic floor is actually like, right? And the yeah. only way to know that is to really get in there and test it. So, yeah. and an, an expert has to do that. <laughs> yeah, you so, know, this, this is what I was, because I get all the people, because obviously I'm, I'm a, I'm, I've got my little PT business on the side as well. Um, mm -hmm. And I get a lot of emails uh, from people saying, okay, can you do X, Y, Z? And also, I also need some sort of uh, mummy MOT, they call it in the UK. Basically, you've, you give birth and then you pay the physical therapist to check you out. They say, okay. Yeah, that bit I don't do. Uh, first okay. of all, it has to be an invasive exam. And I'm, mm -hmm. not, I'm not ending up on that register. Do you know what I mean? And, and, yes. <laughs> and, and, and it's it's... It has to be done, I think, by someone who is remarkably experienced in yeah in, in that field that really knows what what they're looking at and and, and yeah. all that sort of stuff. Um, because there are a lot of products out there now that help women with their um, with their pelvic floor issues, and we're talking like um, I I did an interview with someone a while ago who had an interesting thing. Um, which was like an like like an electric sort of impulse thing. You insert that, and it kind of does it for you because kegels are no, not everyone knows how to do kegels. And okay. and I, I know this is not like you said, this is not your your ballpark, but um, yeah. But it it's. I just wondered whether you'd heard anything. <laughs> so so here yeah. here's here's my basic fundamental concept about healthcare. Yeah. All the treatment in the world doesn't matter if you don't have the right diagnosis. True. So Kegels are going to be the right treatment for some things, but if you're treating some the wrong condition, you're never going to get better. And so you really have to get diagnosed well. And so if if your pelvic floor disorders are causing you problems in life, if you're having incontinence, if you're having prolapse, if you're you know if you're having those kinds of things, go get assessed and get mm -hmm. get a treatment plan. And Kegels might be part of it. But have have an expert tell you. <laughs> so that that's my that's my yeah, two cents no, on that. No, no, that. That makes that makes a lot more sense than just randomly doing whatever Doctor Google uh, right Dr. Google right. tells you. And, it's, and it's, it, well, Doctor Google's a lot cheaper and faster to find information, but <laughs> true, but, <unfortunately, laughs> but you know, ten thousand knowledge. Pages and you don't know what you're looking at. <laughs> that's right. So knowledge is different than wisdom, right? Yes. <laughs> so no, there's yeah, plenty of very, knowledge very, on the internet. Very true, and and so. that is it, it. Is always that is always what, what I say with regards to the get yourself assessed by an expert. People just listening to the podcast. Mm -hmm. It matters that you know where you're starting from. If if you set yes. your sat nav to go to New York, it really matters whether you're leaving from Chicago or from San Francisco. Yes. Because, because your route is different. Yes, you want to end up at the goal, mm -hmm. but how you get there really matters. Sure, you can go into Google and just go, I need to get to enter, I need to get to New York, and you might well stumble upon the right directions, but chances are you won't. Uh, right. That is just right. And I mean, if, if, you're, if you're driving... I mean, if, if you have 50 miles to go, you're going to drive. If you've mm -hmm. got 3,000 miles to go, you're going to take a plane, right? And so the, yeah. there might be different approaches to getting from point A to point B, depending on where you're starting to. So, so yeah, 
proper assessment is is foundational. Yeah, and that is that comes down to the always always work with somebody that knows mm-hmm. um, that, that knows what they're talking about. Yeah. So the interesting thing that again, just just I I, I look at your website and, and and I wrote 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 this bit down because uh, you have obviously you have a, a lot of some clinical trials and I'm not sure how far along into these things there are, but one. Obviously stuck out at me. Uh, pre preconception vaginal care. Yeah, that was listed there, and as obviously, you know, I, I it would be a disgrace for me not to ask. Yeah, <laughs> this. So this study is one of my favorites in concept. I really, really be, because of my my background in developmental origins, mm-hmm. I'm all about you know pregnancy and fetal development and all that kind of stuff. But we have had the hardest time enrolling uh, in this study. Right. Um, we're not. And I think I think the thing is that we're working with a fertility clinic to do this study. And by the time women get to a fertility clinic, they don't want to take three months to wait and try this clinical study. They want to go right to assisted reproductive technologies. And so I think yeah, that's why we've yeah. had difficulty enrolling. I still want to to get the answer to this. And I want it. So this is supposed to be um if we improve the vaginal microbiome, do we improve the odds of conception? I mean, it's mm-hmm. a very simple question, basically. Um, and there are lots of data out there about intrauterine insemination mm-hmm. um, or in vitro fertilization, but there are no studies about couples who are trying to conceive at home. It's yeah. a difficult kind of study to do. It's mm-hmm. difficult to enroll, as we were finding, right? Um, so I, I think we need to work with a more general um, obstetrics clinic or, you know, OBGYN um where they're working with couples who are earlier in their fertility journey. So mm. I think once we, you know, at the, at this point, we're focusing more on BV and recurrent UTI. Um, but I think at some point when we're ready to come around again, we'll we'll look at working with, a, like, like I mentioned, uh, an, an OBGYN as opposed to a well, yeah. reproductive yeah. endocrinologist on it. But, but and, and that said, the, you know, the partners we're working with are great people. It's just, I think, the wrong crowd. So... Yeah, it, it's it's always difficult to indeed once people start seeing doctors, they're not necessarily uh, or or sort of clinics. I I have trained a lot of and I've worked with a lot of women who are um, uh, struggling to conceive and and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff, and mm-hmm. that is really. Uh, who did? Yeah, that's well. And if you're someone who has struggled with infertility to the point where you're at a reproductive endocrinologist mm-hmm. office, very often you're feeling like the biological clock is ticking and three months feels like forever to you. Yeah. So yeah. so I I have a lot of empathy and I totally understand where people are coming from. And so that that's that's why I think we need to catch people who are earlier on. But yeah, I, yeah. I like I, said, I, I did an interview a while ago, uh I say a while ago, I mean over a year ago with Gabriella Rosa, who's uh that's a fertility clinic in Australia, somewhere, mm-hmm. um, who's okay. absolutely killing it there. Um, mm-hmm. Who who had some very interesting ideas on on exactly what you're talking about. She, so so mm-hmm. fairly hardcore, right? Um, so she's like, listen, if 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 you want to get pregnant, you have to pretend like you're already pregnant. That that kind of approach is in alcohol, okay. not a good idea. The husband mm-hmm. is as responsible for you becoming pregnant as the women is, which is, I know, right. a lot of people listening to this, that's a shocker. <laughs> <laughs> the problem might not be the lady. 
That's right. That's right. This, technically, this is possible, boys and girls. Uh, That's right. <laughs> but, and, and, but, but she was really big on that, as in you have yeah. to have that sort of so it'd be interesting to see whether indeed the vaginal biome because she's she's a big believer of, of that might well be a thing something mm -hmm. but of course like you said the 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 study wasn't done yet right right and so like i said based on the in vitro fertilization there's studies there are there's lots of evidence that the vaginal cervical and endometrial microbiomes definitely play a role in fertility mm -hmm. Um, the question is, if you change the biome, does that improve yeah. fertility? That question hasn't really been addressed yet. So, Although that'll yeah, be a fascinating one. If you ever get the answer to that one, definitely. Yeah. Oh, I'll be shouting <laughs> you from the rooftops <laughs> if I do, believe me. Because that's a fascinating, because that, that's, you know, it's, I, 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 did, I spoke a while ago about the, the difficulty with regards to a lot of health-related studies. Health, a lot of health-related research is that the human body is so remarkably complex that it's really mm -hmm. difficult to get good answers from a, from a study. And yeah. even when you're looking at things like back pain studies and all, and just lower, just just uh, just standard LBP, lower lower back pain, lumbar back. Pain. Mm -hmm. It is remarkably difficult to get a really really sound study. Anything above level four is almost impossible to get. Mm -hmm. Because there are that many factors in 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 what what could affect, and you can't control everything yeah. and and, and right. all that sort of stuff. But this sounds like one of those that it'd be a game changer if you find if you find out yeah yeah uh, what the answer well, is. And, and at least you can yeah. test this. Yeah, exactly. And and what's required is a tool to be able to adjust the vaginal microbiome, yeah. right? And that's that's what is not really. <laughs> um it's hard to come by right mm. we have antibiotics and yeah. steroids and we have estrogen creams and we have things like that but uh probiotics are the tool that's available that hasn't yeah. really been thoroughly tested and so that's you know what we'd like to look at but oh, that'll be fascinating that'll be that'll be really yeah. really interesting we've covered yeah. a tremendous amount of ground um yeah and do, did you have anything else that you're like oh peter actually really wanted to mention this um no you know the the thing that i i the things that i wanted to to mention i have mentioned and so, <laughs> so you know i think um i guess the other thing we haven't talked about is utis and utis are not directly related to the vaginal microbiome but they're connected they're like physically connected and so what happens in the vaginal microbiome affects what happens in the in the urinary tract microbiome mm -hmm. and there's still and one of the reasons I want to put this out there is that there's still most healthcare practitioners believe that the bladder is sterile and that is not the case. Um, so it, the, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's mind blowing. It's mind blowing. It's mind blowing. But the, the reality is the reason that BV research is so far behind and the reason people still believe that the bladder is sterile is that there are all these bacteria that just won't grow in culture. And so you can't study them in the lab using old fashioned techniques. So it's only been the last 20 years that we've been able to detect the presence of these microbes using these fancy sequencing based approaches. Um, and now we know about all of these different bacteria that contribute to BV and we know that the, the bladder is not sterile, right? And so we're, we're still just at the very beginning of learning how the vaginal microbiome affects UTIs, uh -huh. but UTIs are 25% of all infections in the US. 
Yeah, and they're, if, they're huge. In, you know, in, in, yeah. Right. And in people my age, you know, I'm a middle-aged woman and people mm-hmm. my age, they're a nuisance. Yeah. You might miss work, right? Mm-hmm. You might miss some pay. You got to take time to go into the office, blah, blah, blah. Might have but, to buy um, cranberry juice. Yeah. Cranberry juice, supplements, whatever, right? It's annoying <laughs> and right. it's, it's, it's uncomfortable, but, but we all have this perspective of UTIs as like, they're just a nuisance. Mm-hmm. But if you look in the postmenopausal crowd and especially the very elderly, UTIs are a cause of morbidity. They kill people and we haven't really figured out how to address UTIs and how to prevent UTIs. Um, and I think that the more we understand about the vaginal microbiome and the urinary tract microbiome, all of this is going to kind of help improve UTIs both in younger people and in, in the elderly too. Mm. So that, that's the other thing that, you know, I'm not an expert on the urinary tract microbiome by any stretch of imagination, but it's, it's the other frontier that's out there that, you know, Again, 25% of all infections, and like every woman gets a UTI at some point in her life. Uh, and, and, almost and, almost and, every woman. And, and, and this is the insane thing, because maybe maybe this is a generational thing, right? But I, I I remember when I had a proper job a long, long time ago, like 20-odd years ago. <laughs> I had a real job, and I sat in an office, and I did what everybody's supposed to do. And, was, and one of, the reason I mentioned cranberry juice, one, yeah. of, my, one of my staff walked in with cranberry a big big thing of cranberry she'd run out to the shop uh, or one of her colleagues had run out to the shop and bought her a whole thing of cranberry juice and everybody except and now let me rephrase that every woman knew what that was was for yeah and i was there and i was i don't know 24 25 years old i had no idea (laughs) Right. She really likes cranberry juice. That's weird. She likes cranberry juice. Oh, that's quite a lot of cranberry juice to drink. Right. And so I asked, and they they said, now I have cystitis. And, you know, okay, next question. What is cystitis? What causes it? Apparently you, and this is the genuine answer, you get it if you wear a short skirt and it's really cold in Scotland. (laughs) Yeah, I'm fairly sure it's it's horse shit and they were taking a piss. But... That was genuinely answered. I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure that that is what they. I, I think if that were true in Scotland, of all places, where men wear kilts, more men would get them. So. <laughs> no, no, men, men, men can't get you in a urinary tract infection. So that no, just, <laughs> that, that, that's just science, right? That's right. That's, that's right. But science. again, it's it's one of those things where the burden of disease falls much more heavily on women yeah. than on. So even though like men can get UTIs and especially, you know, as they get elderly and they need to be catheterized or something, yeah. you know, that's that's a whole thing. But again, it's one of those women's problems. <laughs> it's, it's, but because but that is indeed that is genuinely what it is. It, it's it's and that's exactly what my point was. It was a, a woman's problem that can be fixed by drinking cranberry juice. Um, yeah, well, and but, it can't. I mean, the, yeah, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's, it's one of yeah. those things. But. Yeah. But the, the perception was that it's a woman's problem that can be fixed by cranberry juice, therefore it's not really an issue. Right. And and right. that feeling is just an, uh, that you find that absolutely everywhere when it comes to women's health. Right? It, it's, it's true. And it's so insidious that, mm. that even as you say that, it doesn't hit me the way it should. Like, yeah. like yeah, well, <laughs> I'm a woman, like that it should hit me really hard, but like yeah. It's so true that women's women's problems mm-hmm. are disregarded and they're downplayed and they're like, eh, you just deal with it. It's like, well, you know, you get menstrual cramps. Everybody yeah. gets cramps. You just deal with it. It's okay that you're in, you know, 
curled up in the fetal position in the corner mm -hmm. of, the, of the, you know, wherever you are in yeah. some public space. That's it's just, just cramps. It's normal. You just deal with it. No, no, that's not normal. <laughs> you know, and, 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 but women are just expected to buck up and deal. And, and so. the, the insane thing is, there isn't a guy out there listening to this, and there, there are some men listening to this, there, there, there isn't a guy out there listening to this who has never had cramp in their calf or in their foot. Right. right. And that hurts like a bugger. I mean, super I can't painful. walk. That's super right. painful because you can't walk. You wake up in the middle of the night and your calf yes. seizes up. And yeah. that is the most... After being yeah. kicked in the nanase or maybe <laughs> yeah. potentially giving childbirth, it's it's the most painful feeling in the world, right? We all right. accept that that really hurts. Yeah. Whereas period cramps, <laughs> you know, what I mean? yeah. that can't possibly be serious. Um, yeah. So so it's really odd that we accept man yeah. man problems, and I'm not talking mm -hmm. man flu. I'm I'm talking problems. <laughs> that I'm I'm talking things that happen to men. Right. That can be a real problem. We all empathize and we all, whereas women problems just tend to be a little bit, yeah, but you get them every month. Yeah. And then yeah. they shrug off the shoulder rather than going, Jesus, you get this every month. Right. But that's like, why don't we do thing. something to fix that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Can we sort this? And, and, and yeah. this is, that's exactly where, where I was with, with, with postnatal health. And then Anthony was uh, as well. And, 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 and you clearly are in that. It is insane when there's 50% of the population that has a problem. There's a market. There has to be. I mean, it, you don't need market. to look at it as a market. But mm -hmm. to get stuff done, sometimes you have to look at things as a market. Um, right. And it is insane that there is a 50% group of population uh, population group out there that we just go, yeah, yeah. I'm what can yeah. you do? Yeah. If only they've had the dingling, they'd be fine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, 29% of women have BV. Uh, UTIs are 25% of all infections, and most of those are for women, but they don't matter. You know, right. I mean, the billions of dollars, if nothing else, the billions of dollars that can be saved in healthcare costs, the billions of dollars that women have to forego in pay or that they mm -hmm. have to shell out for doctors' opposite, opposite like, the billions of dollars to get people's <laughs> attention, right? But I guess it's better that they're spending the billions of dollars, right? So I yeah, don't know. It keeps the economy going. Industry right? going, right? <laughs> I, I, you know, anyway, but yeah, I, women women's health really needs to be taken more seriously. You know, only four percent of all medical research funds go to women's health, and it just when you consider UTIs are twenty five percent of all infections, mm -hmm. you think maybe more than four oh, percent. And, and it's, it's insane. I think. You know, I, you you might have caught this depending on. Uh, I know John Oliver uh, last week tonight with John Oliver. He did a whole thing about medical bias uh, a couple of years mm -hmm. ago. It was on YouTube in the UK for everybody listening, but they removed it because Comedy Central no longer has the rights or some shit like that. But okay. it's basically he he just he did a whole twenty five minute thing on medical bias and mm -hmm. showing that most medication out there, even those for. Um, uh, problems with women's uterus, those medications were tested on men because, you know, we don't test things on ladies because they're complicated. And, and, and well, so, I mean, you said there was a, there was a, I don't know if it was a law or a regulation or what it was, but from like the mid 1970s until 1993, I think mm -hmm. I, I might be wrong on the date. Women, women of childbearing age couldn't be used in research studies because yeah. they might get pregnant. Yeah. 
right? Like, well, maybe exclude women who are trying to get pregnant or maybe require, you know, like, but no, like women were actively excluded from research because we, it might harm a potential baby that she might not even be planning on having, right? So, you know, and finally they realize that that's not, that's not great. (laughs) And only recently have they realized, like with the COVID vaccines, pregnant women don't get tested for anything Mm. and therefore pregnant women don't have any options. You know, what painkillers can they use? What vaccines can they get? We, Mm -hmm. we don't have any data telling us what's safe in pregnant women because we're so afraid to do research when there are ways to minimize risk and maximize benefit that really need to be taken more seriously. Um, so that, that with all women, pregnant women, you know, everybody Mm -hmm. has options for healthcare. Yeah, and that is exactly like you mentioned COVID earlier as well, the whole COVID, the the development science thing. And I did a lot on COVID and pregnancy early on because it was changing so much. And yeah. okay, my I, I happen to have a PhD in something completely non-health related, but it means I know how to read the study, right? Um right. and and Stuff just came out constantly, and and at the at the same time, at the start of the pandemic, and I'm talking April, May, so a couple of months after the start, and then the vaccine started rolling out very, very quickly. Um, mm-hmm. Most pregnant women were like, "Oh no, this is going to kill my baby, or make it autistic, right. or God knows what." Right? That's that's right. what the internet told us, and and the right. Facebook is a scary place, um, <laughs> and. It took a while. The, the science was already kind of there saying, listen, this is going to be all right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it takes a while to filter through. And because you're working with a group of people when they're pregnant that are rightfully so and understandably mm-hmm. so, very, very careful with, with what they do and what they want to do and all that sort of stuff. And, and um, that it took a long time. I, I think, I still think in the UK, pregnant women uh, or women, who are considering get, uh, becoming pregnant are still one of the least vaccinated groups in the UK. And that sure. is ahead of people with cultural uh, mm-hmm. problems with vaccinations, uh, mm-hmm. people with religious beliefs and all that. They're still much lower on the group, even though mm-hmm. the science is is kind of established now. As in, listen, you're going to be all right. It's actually a really good idea to get vaccinated because you don't want to catch this thing when you're right. pregnant. Right. Yeah, it's, um, and I, I totally understand not wanting to do something that might hurt the baby. I, I completely understand that. But uh, like I said, there are ways to do research that minimizes yeah. risk. You know, you start with very small studies. And if, you, you know, if you see, if you see anything that, <laughs> that, yeah, that starts to pop up, you stop, right? Yeah. Um, but, but at this point in time, here we are, like, years down the road in the pandemic, if we had started those studies years ago, we'd have viable options for women now. And we mm. don't, we don't for pregnant women. Yeah. Right. So, so at this point when pregnant women are still, you know, relying on, I mean, I, I remember early in the pandemic, I'd heard Francis Collins, um, who was the director of the NIH at the time saying that um, the, the data that they had at the time was that, there were millions of people getting vaccinated. And of those, many women didn't know they were pregnant when they got the vaccine Mm -hmm. or they were very early on or something like that. And they had seen no adverse effects on pregnancy 
across you know the, the groups at that point in time so that's you know yeah. a pretty weak piece of evidence mm -hmm. but that's a, a piece of evidence to start building on right yeah. and the thing is that i only heard that because i was in an interview that he was doing i didn't see that anywhere in the media no. nowhere um what i heard mostly was about an untested hypothesis about how the covid vaccine or the virus might um attack the placenta like yeah. it was a hypothesis it's worth testing you look at it but it's not something to base all your decision making mm -hmm. on versus this clinical data that we have over here that shows it's probably safe. So, you know, the like you said, social media is a scary place. <laughs> and, 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 and also, yeah, and we have to understand that a lot of science and this is the problem. Yeah. This is it's not sexy. And, and, no, and it, it's it, not. It, it's it, messy. <laughs> yeah, and and and, yeah. and it doesn't make nice headlines. And no. vaccine attacking placenta is a it's a lot more Hollywood than yeah, you're probably mm -hmm. all right. That's right. right. Exactly. Exactly. It's not much of a headline to go. Yeah, yeah you're, you're probably sound. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So, so pregnant women don't want probably. They want certainty. Yeah. Right? Well, this is something, and this is one of my favorite David Bowie quotes ever uh, from one of his worst albums ever is, I don't want answers. I want certainty. And, you mm -hmm. know, that is, I mean, obviously mm -hmm. he meant it in an ironic way. The song yes, is called. Uh, I'm, the, the song is called "I'm Afraid of Americans." By the way, um, <laughs> and 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 it it is about. about I don't know that. the song. <laughs> it, 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 like I'm afraid of Americans. I'm afraid of the world. I'm afraid I can't help it. He said, "I don't want answers. I want certainty." And yeah. he clearly meant, dude, you can't have both. <laughs> hey, you can yep. get answers, but with more yeah. answers come more questions. That's kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. And l like you were saying earlier, it seems like the the more people know, the less certain they are, right? Yeah. Um, and and the less they're willing to go out on a limb and say, yes, I know about that thing. Um, and so the people with the loudest, <laughs> the loudest voices often have the least actual knowledge about things. So that, that is very yeah. much where <laughs> I am on on. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I always put caveats in everything I say when I get a listener email. Everything is yeah. caveated. Because yes. I'm like, dude, I, I don't know. I know some yeah. stuff. There's a lot yeah. of stuff I don't know. And even yeah. then, and, and, and you'll you'll have this no doubt as well. You'll know there are people in the world that know more than you do. Right? That that, that are they just like a, these these guys and girls are just next level out there. And it's insane the wealth of knowledge they have. And hopefully mm -hmm. we too one day will get there. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, in the meantime, <laughs> we're doing the best we can. At least I know That's I don't right. know everything. Um, That's right. And, and, and that is kind of on, on not rather depressing note for everybody listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> I will press stop record here. That's all right. And press stop record is exactly what I did. Thanks very much to uh, Dr. DePriest uh, or Beth for coming on. I had a phenomenal, I had, I had great fun. I had a lot more fun than I thought I was going to have talking about vaginal, talking about vaginal health. And I'm guessing you have more fun listening to it than you thought you were going to as well. Um, you can find, uh, I will link, obviously I will link to the Vaginal Biome Science website and all that. There's some tremendous resources, uh, free resources on that website as well. There's a ton of information. I also linked to the Sexual Health and Wellness Institute, shwi.org, where there's some stuff on... Uh, Biomatch and, and Women's Health blog and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, a bit on about truth in advertising and all that sort of stuff. 
um, basically, the, their website is well worth checking out if, you, if you're looking for information. Um, again, thanks very much um, to uh, Dr. Dupuis for coming on. I, I love talking to experts. I love talking to people that really know what they're talking about. Um, I was going to do an in the news this week, but you know, we're already at an hour and 15 minutes with the new bit of music coming in. So I'm not going to. We're going to go back to that next week. I know I've only done one or two uh, this month, but you know, sometimes I record these things in advance. There is no news and the the podcast already runs over an hour. And I know that a lot of you guys stop listening. <laughs> so what's the point to add a useless bit of in the news? So here's a new bit of music. You have a tremendous week. Uh, Peter at healthypostnatalbody.com if you have any questions or comments would like to be a guest or whatever, just get in touch. We'll be here for obviously three months, free access to the healthypostnatalbody.com program just by signing up, right? Um, you take care of yourself. Have a great week. New bit of music, right? Bye now.